Hey, I'm Taiwa Kenyemi, curator and host of the Trajectory Africa podcast series, and you're listening to Vibe Check on the African Precede podcast. Why is it important for founders to size markets? I think <laughs> to some extent I might be projecting um, my own curiosities onto what a founder might consider, but at least I'll explain where the curiosity comes from. So I co-published a report called Chasing Outliers, Why Context Matters for Early Stage Investing in Africa. I believe it was uh, January of 2020, um, the pandemic years start to run together. And we spoke to over 100 founders, investors, and LPs to try to get a clear understanding of how VC is meant to work in Africa, given that there are certain differences um, in context from um, how you might typically view uh, VC investing in Silicon Valley, uh, market sizes, market conditions, uh, consumer preferences, etc. And the one thing that confounded me um, in doing that research and still confounds me today is just from a macro perspective, just looking at the characteristics of markets and consumers. And to be fair, it's very dangerous to start talking about African consumers and African markets because, you know, there are at least 54. And if you start going talking about cities and submarkets and such, obviously, you unlock um, a wealth of complexity. But I'm going to speak about African consumers and African markets for the sake of some level of coherence and simplicity. But you think about some of the key assumptions um, that are embedded in Silicon Valley-style investing. So you assume that you have broad, deep markets, so large numbers of people who have significant amounts of disposable income, who are relatively uh, tech-savvy, who want to take on fully digital solutions that are offered um, by startups. You assume that the markets themselves or the financial markets are deep and broad enough to sort of fund loss-making businesses over long periods of time until they become um, oligopolist or monopolist or whatever economic term you want to use. And some of those key characteristics, particularly when you're talking about consumption power uh, of consumers, whether or not they're they're willing to take on fully digital solutions, sort of raise question marks in my mind about, well, who exactly is the African consumer and how much disposable income um, do these individuals have to spend? Um, DFS Lab did a really amazing uh I guess you call it a blog post or an article using World Bank data to actually size markets and sort of say, okay, um, based on data that has been collected on household consumption, I believe it is, how much money is there for consumption? And so I think, I mean, it's a, it's a very rich and nuanced article, but I think one of the bottom lines was that according to that data, there were maybe about 15 million consumers in Africa who were able to spend more than $20 a day. 15 million people is not a lot to support, you know, a significant number of uh, startups who are uh, presumably sharing 
a portion of this disposable income. And you would assume that most of the disposable income is going to the basics like, you know, food and transportation. And so the reason I'm kind of obsessed (laughs) about market sizes is if you start to think about um, what founders are offering to consumers, there's a lot of discussion about fintech and saving and investing and such. Now you sit that across um, from you know a startup that's doing food delivery or furniture delivery or making sure you can get house help quickly or whatever. You assume it's the same share of disposable income that you're now competing for with all of these other service providers. And so as from a founder perspective, I just think it's really important to think deeply about your assumptions about who your consumers are, how critical your service is, how willing a consumer is to offer that share of their very precious disposable income, and how willing they are to keep offering it to you. Because when your income is constrained and you don't have access to consumer credit, although this is changing, you know, you, you may not be a loyal customer, which has implications for, um, obviously, the success of the business. Tell me, what's your secret? What's your secret? In thinking about what it means to have a secret as a founder, if you're intending to create a market and play the long game and sort of say, I know enough about the industry I'm in to know that what I'm building is the wave in, of the future, and key trends in terms of consumption, access to internet, trends related to uh, macroeconomic conditions, whether it's uh, inflation-related or currency All of these things are going to work in my favor, but I'm going to invest the time and energy to, to build that market. So one is implicit in, in, in that assertion is that you, in fact, know enough about your industry or can f- uh, learn quickly enough about your industry to be able to understand where the points of leverage are and, and be able to make the decisions and investments where you can kind of exploit your secret. And this actually comes from an article that I read probably a year or two ago. I cannot remember where I saw it or who wrote it. But the author basically argued that instead of thinking about uh, rushing to market, going in stealth, moving quickly so you can sort of capture and become the monopolist or oligopolist or whatever, you should think about knowing enough about your industry to move slowly uh, because you know so much more than other people that you can really figure out what the real problems are, what the real barriers are, and move strategically and deliberately to overcome them. And the assumption is it's going to take time. If if your argument is about building markets, that's going to take time and that's going to take investment. But presumably it also takes enough um, knowledge of what currently exists to be able to overcome that. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind both in terms of of having secrets, but also in terms of building a market, is that traditionally, obviously, yes, venture capital is meant to do exactly this. I mean, the risk return premise is kind of based on the on the idea that you're going to bet on something that creates or dominates a category. 
I think the challenge is it's not clear to me. I mean, it may be clear to investors or founders who have been in the in the ring before whether that's the kind of money that's coming into the continent or not. I mean, the sense that I get is that African startups have to be more profitable and have uh, sustainable business models earlier because of all of the other challenges that that come into the fore, the macroeconomic risks and such that some sort of argue that are kind of overblown. If that money is not coming in at a macro level, then as a founder, you need to be clear about what type of investors you have. So do you have the type of investors who see that type of vision are going to say, look, we're going to ride with you for the next 10 to 12 years. And we understand the first five or six are going to be based on cracking and and building this market in an analog fashion. And then you're going to drop the digital layer on top. And so we're all going to ride to to Shangri-La. But you have to know your sector well enough to do that. The right money has to be in place and you have to have the right investors with the right money to make that work. Putting money back in the customer's pocket. I think the reason why the insight around putting money in your customer's pocket came to light was it was a combination of multiple things. Um, part of it, again, was a research, but a lot of it also was the podcast. So I had three conversations, um, one with the DFS lab on the size of African markets generally, one with steers about the size of Nigerian markets specifically, and then one about SMEs. And so what all of these had in common, I'll take DFS lab first. They mostly focus on digital commerce. But one thing that Jake, one of the founders, explicitly said was that in the context, mind you, of of the wonderful article they wrote about sizing uh, consumer markets and sort of saying, look, there's some constraints here, but we still think the opportunity is massive. And one point he made was essentially this point, was that if you can find ways to help your customers make more money, obviously they will have more money to spend with you. So in the context of digital commerce, This is where the conversation about SMEs with Goucher from Seisha Capital. We talked about how SMEs are underappreciated as an investment opportunity, but also because the people who run SMEs, they're generating income, which could make them consumers. And then their employees are earning income who could also become consumers. And then also in the conversation with Steers, we just had a really beautiful breakdown of, you know, the total size of or the population of Nigeria and and then all of the factors that that reduce the size of the funnel from um, the number of people who are employed, uh, the number of people who have access to internet, cost of data, Etc. So all of those three different conversations just sort of underscore this notion that if you're able to find opportunities for um, African consumers or and in this case also producers to make money, they will also be able to uh, consume what you're offering. And so we it, we start to see the practical application of that in in all of these startups like uh, Wasoko, for example, that are somehow supporting SMEs to become more efficient, source their stock better, uh, even start to access loans to make their businesses more productive. And so 
the digital commerce economy being led by digitized SMEs creates a foundation that would inevitably also power the VC ecosystem and founders who are seeking customers, whether they are SMEs or individuals. Why should founders be clear on what they want to build? The reason I think it's really important for founders to be crystal clear about what they want to build is because all of the decisions internal to the business and partnerships external to the business, including who you partner with to help build your business, invest in your business, kind of stems from that. I didn't want to kind of lean into negativity in answering this question, but I think it also potentially saves a lot of heartache and confusion down the road. So so let me try to be a little bit more concrete. Again, in the research for Chasing Outliers, we asked a lot of questions about values orientation and alignment of, of goals and such. And something that came out very strongly is that there are all kinds of founders and innovators on the continent. Everything from what you might call household innovator, someone who sort of Uh, hacks something together in their home and sort of shares it with friends and family, all the way to the types of businesses that are getting a lot of um, attention now, the kind of digital growth-oriented venture-backed businesses. All of these are necessary and useful, and all of them are valid. Um, The challenge is, I think, because VC as a vehicle to invest in tech startups gets the most visibility, it seems like anyone who has a funding need is looking to VC. So it, it seems like there's a lot of frustration around, you know, I have this business. Why won't VCs invest in me or why can't I get VC funding? And the answer is VC really only works for a teeny tiny microscopic or minuscule percentage of all businesses anywhere. It's not just in Africa. It's a very specific value proposition that they're looking for. They want companies that are going to be worth billions and billions of dollars who can grow really, really quickly and dominate the market. Most businesses and most places are not that. So knowing what type of business, or at least having a sense, obviously it's a journey of whether or not building that type of scalable business is in fact your calling if the problem you're aiming to solve is um, the type that lends itself to that type of scale is important because it will save you frustration in in talking to VCs because getting rejection is part of the process. Inevitably, you get less rejection if it's clear that what you're building is in fact a venture-backable business. It's also uh, important, maybe even more important from a values perspective. If you're trying to build a lifestyle business to pass on to your sons and daughters, um, you may not want to give up equity. You may not want to give up control. You may not want to conquer the world, in which case you're going to butt heads with an investor whose aspirations are different from that. So inevitably, all of this is relationship-based, so you're in a better position when the people you've entered a relationship with understand what your goals and values and priorities are, and those are shared with them. Because if they're not, you'll end up having difficult and painful conversations about how they don't align uh, later down the line. What founders should know about engaging VCs. In as much as any founder's focus is the business and building um, the business, if you are, in fact, building a venture-backable business, it does make sense to have a sort of basic understanding of how VC works. 
what makes a business venture backable in terms of, you know, size of market and and value and ambitions, how investors invest, when they invest, how much they invest, what the terms are, um, what those uh, documents look like, what you have to think about in terms of how you're being compensated for your your time is in, you know, you give up X amount of equity for X amount of investment. But if you don't retain enough equity, then obviously, what is your incentive to continue? So that is one bucket. I think the other bucket is sort of a, an understanding of essentially VC business models. When you're talking to an investor or an investor comes to you just as you have certain targets to meet to make sure that your business runs, they do too. <laughs> you know, they need to have a certain number of quote unquote unicorns or winners or however outliers, however you want to characterize it to make sure that uh, they can get paid, their investors can get paid and they get to continue to be investors. Some of them have been in the game for a while. Maybe they've raised one or more funds. But if you're dealing with someone who's raised their first fund, some of the challenges that I think that a founder faces in going to VC after VC and kind of opening all of their business to be evaluated for investments, first-time fund managers have to do the same thing. Uh, They have to say, here's me, here's my team, here's how we're going to make money for you, um, here's our model. And so I think sometimes a relationship can be viewed as antagonistic, that you're the one with the power and the money and I'm the one who's, you know, begging for investment. But there are ways in which sometimes there are commonalities, uh, common experiences, although I wouldn't take anything away from the difficulty of being a founder, particularly one on the continent. So having an understanding of the VC business models maybe helps you understand to some extent how they are approaching you as a founder and what um, they have to achieve in partnership with you in order for you to be successful, in order for them to be successful. Because I imagine, I have not been in these conversations, but I would imagine that some of these conversations might be painful and confusing um, in terms of, you know, maybe the business is not performing uh, to the level that was expected or there are unexpected difficulties. And you might look at your your uh, venture partner or investment partner and say, what what is going on here? If you have an understanding of, you know, their basic modus operandi, um, it might help you to understand why they're making some of the decisions that they're making. Of course, this is you would like to assume that dialogue and trust and relationship building kind of underscores um all of this, but it kind of raises a question. I often wonder if, in fact, VCs open their books um, in the same way that founders are kind of required to open their books <laughs> when there's a transaction. I mean, do founders get to see the portfolio construction model? Do they get to see, you know, the number of businesses that return hundreds of millions of dollars versus those who return zero? Do they get to see, you know, what the hurdle rate is for the LPs? I don't know. Probably not, but it's something that I've I've uh, wondered about. So thanks for listening. If you're an Africa-focused founder or investor looking to learn more about Africa's tech ecosystem, check out AfricanPreSeed.com for more great content like this. Otherwise, that's all for now. I'm Tayo Akinyemi, and this has been Vibe Check. Remember, eat your chocolate and remember your integrity. Take care.